Welcome to CP's Deep Dive. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. I interview authors whose books I have narrated, books written by authors making a positive difference in the world, tackling the tough challenges. Today, I am very pleased to be speaking with Michael Basler, professor of law and the 1939 Society Scholar in Holocaust and Human Rights Studies, Dale E. Fowler School of Law, Chapman University, and Frank Turkheimer, professor of law emeritus, University of Wisconsin Law School, and he is also a former Watergate prosecutor. Authors of the important work, Forgotten Trials of the Holocaust, a legal and historical review of 10 Holocaust trials other than Nuremberg, dealing with Nazi and collaborator defendants charged with war crimes and crimes against humanity, accused of participating in the annihilation of millions of innocent people, Jews, Slavs, Poles, Romas, also known as gypsies, Russians, and and so many more. This is not an easy book to read or listen to, but it is so important and rife with information anyone who cares about politics, history, the military, the horrors of an authoritarian regime, World War II, Nazism, Hitler, hate crimes, similarities to what is happening today in the U.S., and more I believe many of us want to know more about. I thought I knew a fair amount about the Holocaust, but narrating forgotten trials of the Holocaust was a real wake-up call for me about how much I had to learn. Included, by the way, in Forgotten Trials of the Holocaust is the story of Amon Goethe, the psychopathic SS commandant of the concentration camp in German-occupied Poland, featured in Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's List. Thank you so much for making time for Deep Dive, Michael and Frank. First, Michael, did I correctly and fairly characterize your book, or did I miss something? You did it beautifully. Thank you, Carson. Sure. And Frank, you feel the same way? Yes, I do. Wonderful. Well, Michael, I'm going to start with you. Um, what inspired you to write this book? Clearly a labor of love, as well as being an important contribution to the subject and the world. And by the way, this book is for popular consumption. You do not have to be a lawyer to read or listen to this book and have it make a lot of sense. Yes, thank you for saying that. Uh, the motivation that Frank and I had is that we teach about the Nuremberg trials, um, a lot of people are aware about those. Some people are aware about the trial of Adolf Eichmann that took place in Israel in 1961 and 62 when he was captured in Argentina. But um, even people who are scholars in the Holocaust really are not aware that there were so many other trials that took place starting in 1944 um, all the way actually now to the present day. If we were going to do a second edition of this book, we'd mention trials that have taken place in the last year or so. And so we really wanted to tell the story um, of the Holocaust through these trials. We also wanted to bring the reader into the courtroom because these are really gripping courtroom dramas. And they really show so much about humanity, so much about legal systems around the world. So for us, it really became a passion and a labor of love to tell these forgotten stories. Frank, of the trials you wrote about, and both you and Michael wrote about different trials, which did you find most important? Well, can I just, before answering that question, can I just provide a slight amendment to uh, Michael's answer? Uh, Both of us are concerned about Holocaust denial and about the fact that as time passes, uh, the survivors of the Holocaust, that is people who are actually in the concentration camps, will rapidly become zero. 
And one of the things that we've both found to be very important is that as one reviews these trials, one notices that the defendants, that is the persons who had most to lose by virtue of being found guilty, that is, they could either be executed or sentenced to life imprisonment. In short, they had the greatest motivation to challenge the evidence, and almost invariably they were represented by very, very capable counsel. Uh, none of them challenged the underlying facts about the mass murder of the Jews. That is, it's just they, they had every incentive and every reason to do so, but they didn't. Their defenses were, I didn't know, I had to do it, I wasn't there, uh, I was unaware of what was happening, et cetera, et cetera. No one said, you know, the under, they, they weren't murdered. And both Michael and I feel that that's a really important theme to emerge from these trials and one that should put the umpteenth nail on the coffin of Holocaust denial. Uh, now, to get to your question, I personally think that the most important of the five trials I wrote about, I think they're all very important, and I don't mean to minimize any of them, is actually the Einsatzgruppen trial, which was one of the later Nuremberg trials after the one presided over by the judges from the four winning allied powers. There were uh, 14 of these trials, or 12, Michael could correct me on that, and one of them was a trial of the SS men who followed the German army eastward across the Soviet Union and basically bullet by bullet murdered approximately one and a half million Jews, actually more Jews than were killed in any one of the concentration camps. And the reason I find that this trial was significant is because, A, it, it happened and it was a, probably the greatest mass murder trial in history prosecuted by Ben Ferenc, who uh, I can, I'm happy to say, is still alive and well and doing what he can in connection with uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity. But what, what happened was that this trial, the defense of following orders was exposed to be complete nonsense. Nobody had to kill because they had to, and the trial judge developed various facts to support that. And it, it kind of a, it knocks down the myth that those who participated in the killings did so because they had no choice. The sad fact is that they had choice and they opted to kill. Yes, the Nazis maintained that if they did not kill, they themselves would be killed. But that was a lie, right? That was absolutely untrue. The, the, one of the defendants in this case, in the case, actually refused to follow the orders to kill. And uh, he spent a couple of days in the brig and that was it. And there was testimony that before, the, uh, with respect to some of these one of the other Einsatzgruppen, and including these troops, that before they started out, they were told what they had, to, what they were going to be doing, and those who didn't want to participate should step forward, and several stepped forward, and they were just sent back to Berlin and then had to join the regular German army. So fight an enemy face-to-face -face rather than just kill people arbitrarily at will. In his trial, Amund Goethe portrayed himself as a victim Many Nazis did, feeling it was unfair to put them on trial for slaughtering millions of people, which many of them said they were just simply unaware of. Michael, do you want to tackle that one? That was a very interesting chapter to write. Um, one is because people who saw Schindler's List, and you see the last part of the movie where you saw a brief um, snippet of, of the trial and his, you know, his execution. But there's so much, much a larger story to this. Um, the Ralph Fiennes, who played Amon Goth uh, in, in Spielberg's 
uh, movie that's such a fine job of actually characterizing what a horrible man this was. And so he was captured because he impersonated, you know, a lowly uh, German officer. And it was actually identified uh, by two of the people at the camp. And he was arrested and he was brought to Poland at the same time as Rudolf Haas, who was the commandant of the Auschwitz camp. But in Haas, in his autobiography, mentions that when uh, Amon Goth was brought back, there was such fury at seeing that man because he had such a horrible, you know, horrible reputation and just purely sadistic, cruel in, in so many different ways, as um, Schindler's List portrays. But he ended up uh, putting up a, a good defense. And he basically tried to, you know, to say that he was kind, that he would actually try to prevent things from happening. And obviously that he was not successful. And he was found guilty and, and he was hanged. And I, justice was, was done in that, in that particular case. Um, to me, that, there was a personal note to that because I was raised in Poland, came to the United States at age 11 from Poland. So for me, that was part of my history. And diving into that, it also gave me an opportunity to look again how horribly Poland suffered uh, during World War II and how horribly the Polish Jews suffered. Uh, Poland had the largest population of Jews outside the United States, three and a half million people. 90% of them were murdered. And so here was a trial that took place in Krakow with a small remnant of the population of the Jews that survived they were actually in the courtroom listening as to what was going on. It's a, an amazing drama. I, I could see a whole other movie that people could make just on the Amundgoth trial. Well, I have to say, I was, um, as a non-lawyer person, but one who cares obviously very deeply about all these subjects, I was really frustrated in the book where the victims, the true victims, were treated so poorly on the witness stand. And this didn't happen at one trial. This was universal. The Nazis portrayed themselves as victims, and the real victims were eviscerated on the witness stand. Frank, do you want to take that one? Yeah, well, it, unfortunately, that did happen. But one does have a little bit of a conceptual problem here, because if you're a defense lawyer, your obligation is to do everything possible to defend your client that's within the bounds of ethics. And being nice to witnesses is not uh, is not ethically directed. So in a sense, uh, it's almost inevitable. What, what What's troublesome is when it's the court that is... Uh, you know, not tremendously sympathetic to the witnesses and hostile. And that happened, unfortunately, in one of the American cases, the denaturalization of, of Fyodor Fedorenko, who was a guard at the horrendous death camp Treblinka. And the judge uh, in that case, it, it, it was a denaturalization case. The idea is if you were in a guard in a concentration camp and obtained U.S. citizenship through by making false statements, which was inevitable, you could be denaturalized, and once denaturalized, you could be deported. And the judge who presided at the denaturalization proceeding, the Fedorenko, was clearly very hostile to the witnesses who were survivors of Treblinka. You know, there was just a handful of people survived Treblinka. It was a tremendously efficient death camp, 
And uh, so these people, after having survived Rublinka, come to the United States, they were all Israelis, uh, had to be subjected to abuse, not just so much by the defense lawyer who was just trying to do his job, but by the judge who was tremendously hostile to the prosecution. He actually found against the prosecution, but the case was reversed by the appellate court, and then actually the Supreme Court, and Fedorenko was ultimately deported to the Soviet Union, where he was uh, he was subsequently executed. So I have a question dealing with today's courts. Donald Trump is trying to fill the courts with very right-wing, and I would say this judge was representative of that thought, judges. So what happens if, you know, do the appellate courts and the Supreme Court still have backup in case there is judicial misconduct? Well, I, I don't know. Michael may have a different slant on this. I, I frankly, I mean, I don't know that a right-wing judge would necessarily be sympathetic to uh, a guard in a Nazi concentration camp. Uh, so I, I, I'm not sure there's, should there be subsequent cases like Fedorenko, which of course is uh, becoming less and less likely because obviously we're Hey, we're dealing now with people who would be 90 years old, and uh, I don't think we'll see too many of those. But even if we were, I, I'm not sure that a right-wing philosophy would of necessity involve hostility towards survivor witnesses, which also, who also would be 90 years old, which is one of the reasons I suspect we're not going to get too many of these. In one case, you both disagreed. Would you tell us about the case, Michael, starting with you, and why you each wrote an independent analysis in the chapter? Yes, this was actually the, one of the most difficult uh, cases to write about, and it's the trial of um, the so-called Kapos, K-A-P-O-S. These were individuals who, in the concentration camps and the death camps, um, were forced to work in supervisory positions. Kapos were both Jews and non-Jews, but one of the things that the Jew that the Nazis did, and, and this is really another part of the the evil of the concentration camp system and the German system of the way they ran it, is that they appointed people that were the prisoners in order to supervise the people under them and to commit some cruel acts. And then if they did such things, would end up getting benefits that would make a difference between life and death. So if you are a, a concentration camp inmate, but you are the supervisor of a labor brigade that goes out every single day, you end up getting a warmer coat, you get more food, but you have to very, be very cruel to the prisoners. And if you're not, uh, then you're replaced by someone else you know, who is more cruel. And so this was a very difficult situation because what happened is some of these individuals, they survived, just like the victims, the pure victims survived, and they made their way to um, Israel. And you had this very strange phenomenon of individuals encountering on city streets, someone, you know, two people that were in concentration camps together, um, and rather than greeting themselves as compatriots, one would start violently attacking the other person because that person was the uh, the cruel capo. It made the situation even worse because there was a sense of Kalina, a sense of betrayal, because there was a feeling on the part of the people who were 
the victims of these capos, that it was fellow Jews who were treating them. And so the Germans themselves kept their hands clean by being away and ordering others in order to do so and made it really so difficult for them you know, to say no. As I said, it's a question of life and death. And so the um, Israeli parliament decided to pass a law, the Nazi and Nazi collaborators law, in order to put some individuals on trial. And these so-called Kapo trials took place in Israel, uh, some all the way up to the beginning of the 1960s, even after Eichmann was captured. And so we, these are the, really the most forgotten of the forgotten trials, the ones that are not even discussed in Israel today. And so it now comes the question, what do you do with these people? And this is where Frank and I wrote two different conclusions because we could not agree. I felt that no matter how cruel the acts of these individuals, that the uh, environment that they were in, uh, what was sometimes been characterized as planet Auschwitz, uh, a different planet where there are no more rules of behavior by which individuals are bound to on this planet, just cannot apply. And so that these individuals should not have been put on trial. And Frank disagreed that no matter, and Frank, I'm characterizing you, but please, after I finish, that no matter how much duress that these people were under, uh, that there was still some choice and um, that putting them on trial does provide some modicum of justice. Frank? Yeah, I think our differences are, are slightly exaggerated. I, I made the distinction which the inmates made. That is, the inmates could tell when they were being beaten by a capo whether the capo was doing the absolute minimum that he had to do to satisfy the German overseer who was watching. And I would agree completely that those capos should not be prosecuted. There were, however, capos who would beat Jews, other fellow Jews, when nobody was around and who would clearly do, so, do more than they had to do to satisfy their German overseer. And my position is that when you, you have to distinguish between group A, who I say certainly should not be prosecuted, and group B, who I think should be prosecuted, recognizing what Michael's point, that planet Auschwitz is a, you know, is, is a place unlike anything that ever existed on Earth and hopefully never will exist again. But nevertheless, you know, if it was clear that someone did more than he had to to inflict pain on an inmate, uh, then that person should be prosecuted. Well, I was surprised to read that Israel and Israelis did not respect Holocaust victims or survivors when they moved to Israel after the war. They could not understand how six million Jews could simply be led to their mass, mass deaths. Right. And this was part of the mythology that um, the, the young Israelis had. You know, the idea of Israel as a place where there are enemies about you and you defend and you fight. And at least the mythology, and I don't think it's a correct mythology, perfectly correct, that you had these uh, individuals all went like sheep to the slaughter. And in fact, during the Eichmann trial, this was something that the prosecutor in the Eichmann trial kept asking each one of the witnesses, why did you not resist? Why didn't you, you know, do something? And he did it in order to really teach the Israelis that this was a situation where you could not. And in fact, witness after witness who was asked that question could said, what could I do? It was just impossible. You put yourself 
yourself in that situation and really all resistance comes to the end at least you know the violent resistance that seemed to be impossible and the people that were asked the questions were some of the people who were the partisans some of the people who violently resisted who fought against the germans and they said that it's a miracle that there was anyone who resisted like that because the way the human nature is and the brutality that was put on these people that resistance would be something as small as one person helping another person or if you're religious that you know you say your um, morning or evening religious prayers you you held on to some aspects of your humanity in one sense that was part of the resistance go ahead frank you know i think the those who were resistors uh, said the the question shouldn't be why didn't people resist but how was it that people did in fact resist and there's a couple of things number one I want you to understand that as we view over as we look over this thing we don't get the full, full picture because where there was resistance it was far more often than not unsuccessful and those who resisted were killed so who is around to talk about it those who resisted are dead those who kill them are not going to brag about it. So we, by definition, we get a slanted perspective on on, on the question of resistance. Uh, the other point is, and I, I think that it, it has to be understood, is, is the trains. The distance from Warsaw to Treblinka is about, I think, 65 miles. Uh, the, when the Warsaw Ghetto was emptied out, it was largely emptied out to Treblinka, which was a death camp where very, very few people survived. And it's 65 miles. I mean, it would take a freight train, what, two to three hours to go from one place to the other. Well, it took days. And the people in the trains were not sitting in parlor cars. They were jammed together in cattle cars with maybe one bucket of water and one bucket where they could use uh, to, to satisfy urges. And they weren't fed anything. And they were, if it was summertime, it was hot. And if it was a wintertime, it was cold. And they went back and forth for a couple of days under those conditions. So obviously, when they were let out at Treblinka, they were not raring to go to fight and to resist. They were totally, totally weakened. Uh, in the in the, uh, the Dachau case, there was an example of a train that, when it arrived, I think it started off with 900 people. 700 died on the train because of the brutally inhumane conditions. And about 200, there were about 200 survivors. So it's the idea of willingly marching off to the gas chambers uh, is sort of a, a fictional picture. I mean, the people who ended up walking to the gas chambers invariably had been totally, totally debilitated by the train experience. And I think the Eichmann trial brought that out. And there's also coming a sense of there's always a sense of hope. You learn so much about humanity when you look at these situations. So when the people were coming and they were separated, and let's say not Treblinka, but Auschwitz, when they were separated into those that would live and those that would send to the gas chambers, there was always that ray of hope that maybe this is not the end, that we will be able to survive. And then you find yourself talking about horrible situations packed inside, you know, hermetically sealed gas chamber. And at that moment, you know, as the poison comes in and people start choking, that you realize this is the end. But people were always hoping that you know they could survive. And the Germans fed on that hope. For example, at Auschwitz, before going into the gas chambers, people were told to take their clothes off, and there were hooks that had numbers on them. 
and I mean, you could see that you know the, 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 the pure evil on the part of the Germans here. They said to people, "Remember your number, so that when you come out of the shower, you can get your clothes back." I mean, so <laughs> to the very end, there was deception. Yeah, when you arrived at Treblinka, you arrived what they looked like a, a train station, and it had a clock that didn't move. It had signs that where other places that supposedly the trains would be going. So when people were fed this this lie, this fiction that they were hanging on to, that all they were being is just being resettled uh, rather than being murdered. People just could not believe, you know, even those that escaped from those camps and made their way and told their stories. And even they were brought to the United States, you know, and President Roosevelt and Justice Frankfurter were told about this. People just could not believe it. Well, as a non-lawyer, I have to tell you that I was left feeling that there is no such thing as real justice. And how could there ever be for the millions annihilated uh, with the vast majority of their killers and abusers able to walk free? Uh, David Cornwell, also known as John Le Carre, writes in his autobiography, The Pigeon Tunnel, that Germany actually passed a law some years after the war that restored SS soldiers' full benefits, promotions, and retirement pay as if their military career had not been interrupted by the war. I found the legal process pretty cumbersome and frustrating for trials that were held almost immediately after the war, and especially for those held decades later after. Nazis lied. They just, they just lied. They, they considered themselves victims. Uh, they were being put upon. This was unfair. They were fighting in a war, and they should be left alone. And, of course, as I say, I found the treatment of many Holocaust survivors in court generally disrespectful. And it reminded me of how victims of sex crimes are treated. Right. Challenging their memories, for example. Of course, this happened years ago in the later trials. It was cold. Was it December? Was it Christmas? Was it Hanukkah? The only thing I can see happening is the only way to, to uh, make something like this not happen is to prevent it prophylactically. And that's something you do address in the book, that these trials are meant to warn evil leaders that this is what they're in for if they commit these atrocities. And no matter how long it takes. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, but, the, you know, you can never really measure the effect of general deterrence. Uh, I, I do want to add, though, that I'm, I'm sorry to say, because it's not an addendum I enjoy making, but we in the United States, we're not particularly um, uh, severe either with respect to these Einsatzgruppen that I mentioned that murdered one and a half million Jews. Originally, of the 21 or 22 defendants, 14 were sentenced to death. Well, the trials were not popular in the United States. They were uh, Senator Taft, as I recall, reading was a leading Republican was against them, and there was a fair amount of sentiment that these trials should never have taken place at all. And in the Einsatzgruppen example of the 21 or 22 defendants that were found guilty, 14 were originally to be executed and the rest were to serve life imprisonment or long periods of incarceration. By the time the process went through reviews and everything, only four were to be hung and the rest were imprisoned and all of those were released within 10 years of the trial. Uh, and that wasn't the Germans, that was us. The large motivation for this, you have to understand the historical context. It's not an excuse, but it's just an understanding yeah, that um, we were entering the Cold War, the Cold War 
uh, Germany, West Germany, was seen as a bulwark to communism. That and what the West Germans demanded is that to go forward for this to be forgotten. And so the Americans felt that that's not just the Americans, but also the British. One of the unknown facts about someone who's a hero to us, you know, the Darkest Hour film is not being out by Winston Churchill. For Churchill, after the war and after the Iron Curtain speech, specifically in Parliament, you know, came back and they said, no, we want these trials to be closed down, that there should be no more prosecution of Germans. Conrad Adenauer, who was the, the prime minister in Germany, uh, or the president, I think, the chancellor, played the Soviet card very, very well. Uh, and as a result, you had the, the kind of results we talked about. The last person in prison from the Nuremberg trials was uh, Hess, not uh, Rudolf Hess, from the, the commandant of Auschwitz, but the deputy prime minister who fled to England to try to make a separate truce between the Germans and the, the British against the Soviets. And the reason he remained in prison until he killed himself at age 99 or something like that is because it required his pardoning or letting him out required Soviet approval, and the Soviets would never do that. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with today? Well, I would like to say that there is a legacy of these trials for today, and not just the trials that we talk about in the book, but Nuremberg itself, that there is an important lesson, legal lesson, I think we're speaking now, I'm speaking from the point of view of, of, as a law professor, that the idea that as a result of these atrocities, a result of genocide, rights, crimes against humanity, war crimes, that the legal system will step in and will put these individuals to justice. And this was not a foregone conclusion. At the end of the war, um, there was major debate going on. What should we do? within the, even the high-ranking you know, Germans that we captured. And there was talk of just basically just shooting them. And it was the Americans um, who were the major proponents of, no, that's, if we do that, then we're behaving just like the Germans did uh, with the legal system. That the response to this is to give these individuals a trial and a fair trial. Uh, you know, Stalin wanted a trial, but it was going to be a show trial where it's the, the result is determined. And the Americans said no. And Justice Jackson, who was a Supreme Court justice who stepped down and became the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg, insisted that the trial be fair and that the evidence be heard by the judges and, and the decisions be based upon the evidence that was presented. And what is interesting and unknown that of the 22 defendants that were put on trial in Nuremberg, we're talking about the major Nazis, mm -hmm. that three of those defendants were acquitted. Not that they were not guilty of their crimes, but that the judges, at least the Western judges, the American, the British, the French, felt that the prosecution could not prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt for the charges that they were uh, prosecuted. Later on, they were also prosecuted under the German legal system and found guilty. But that's a very important legacy. And it's, I think it's a legacy that exists today, that no matter how horrible acts are committed by individuals, that the international legal system would put individuals on trial. I think the trial of Saddam Hussein in Iraq is an example of that. And even the fact, and, and I bring this up to my students, that when Osama bin Laden was captured, 
there was a discussion, well, could he have been, instead of, you know, just shot at that point, could he have been brought to trial? And the only reason that discussion exists today is because we have this legacy that um, we give individuals a fair trial. It's a pity that the people who foster such evil on innocent victims don't have that same notion. Uh, thank you so much for joining CP's Deep Dive. Michael Basler, professor of law and the 1939 Society Scholar in Holocaust and Human Rights Studies, Dale E. Fowler, School of Law, Chapman University, and Frank Turkheimer, professor of law emeritus, University of Wisconsin Law School, authors of the very important work, Forgotten Trials of the Holocaust. You're making a difference, and I believe it's an important work literally everyone should read or, or listen to. Speaking of which, what do you think of the audio format for your book? If the audio mechanism lets you go back, I guess that's different. Yes, you can re-listen to it. You can go back to any part and re-listen, re-listen, re-listen. That's, that's great. And in that case, it's great. Michael? Michael? I, I agree. I'm an aficionado of audiobooks and recordings and podcasts. So very much appreciate, Colleen, that you took the time to do this. Oh, for sure. My pleasure. Join us for our next CP's Deep Dive when I'll be speaking with Stephanie Kane, author of Where Rivers Meet the Sea, The Political Ecology of Water, an important look at our endangered water resources, how industry and pollution deprive populations from clean water and adequate sewage services, as well as contributing to the poisoning of entire bodies of water, how environmental activists are being killed without repercussion, trying to protect the valuable life-sustaining resource another writer and book making a difference. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. Re-record at Bayman Studio. To contact me, email cpsdeepdive, that's C-P-Z, deep dive, one word, at gmail.com. Chris is at baymanstudio.com. I'm at colleenpatrick.com. Let's make a difference. Let's make a difference.